Indie Hackers is a platform for independent software businesses to discuss strategy and find inspiration. Cortland Allen founded Indie Hackers with the goal of sharing the stories of these businesses, and the company has become a thriving community of entrepreneurs and engineers and creators. Business is a creative medium, and the definition of a successful business is as subjective as the rules for what makes a successful work of art. A business owner can be miserable running a company that generates millions of dollars a year, and a new entrepreneur can feel ecstatic from making their first $5 sale. Indie Hackers is a platform that is impossible to define in relation to things that you've seen before. It's a media company with a podcast that most Software Engineering Daily listeners would probably enjoy, and it's a social platform for learning how modern software companies are built. It's a place where makers post their own progress on their creative projects. I've posted mine on Indie Hackers, and it's a pretty cool magazine of businesses and things that are thriving. Cortland was on the show three years ago to discuss the Indie Hackers movement in its nascent stages, and he returns to the show to discuss the thriving platform as it exists today. And we had a great wide-ranging conversation about software, game theory, and podcasting. We are hiring a head of growth for Software Engineering Daily. If you like Software Engineering Daily and you consider yourself competent in sales, marketing, and strategy, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. If your product has dashboards and reports, you know the importance of making those analytics products beautiful. Logi Analytics gives you embedded analytics and rich visualizations. You don't need to be a designer to get great analytics in your product. According to the Gartner analyst firm, the look and feel of embedded analytics has a direct impact on how end users perceive your application. Go to logianalytics.com slash sedaily to access 17 easy changes that will transform your dashboards. That's L-O-G-I-Analytics.com slash S-E-Daily. Logi Analytics is a leading development platform for embedded dashboards and reports. And Logi gives you complete control to create your own analytics experience. Logi Analytics has been a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily for a while, and we're very happy to have them. So thanks to Logi Analytics, and go to logianalytics.com slash sedaily to find 17 easy changes that will transform your dashboards. You can get better dashboards and reports inside your product with embedded analytics from Logi Analytics. Corland, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Our first show was three years ago, believe it or not. That's crazy. How have things changed since then? Well, when we first recorded, I didn't have a podcast. And I think as a direct result of coming on this show and talking to you about podcasting, I think after the recording, we just talked about podcasting for a long time. And people have been suggesting that I start a podcast for indie hackers because at that point in time, it was just a website. It's basically a glorified blog and people were like hey i like the interviews you're doing online but like can you just do a podcast so i can listen on my way to work or in the kitchen i'm like no that sounds like a ton of work and i would never do it and you pushed me over the edge 
and convince me that yes, it is a ton of work, but it's super rewarding and it's kind of the future of content. So why wouldn't I have a podcast? So I think that was what, like November of 2016, maybe even October. And I launched my podcast with three episodes in February of the next year, 2017. So the podcast is two and a half years old now. It's getting crazy number of downloads. It's by far bigger than the website that sort of helped bootstrap the podcast in the first place. So that's one major difference. What else is different? Indie Hackers is now owned by Stripe. So when I first came on your show, Indie Hackers was a small bootstrapped one person business. And I was making, I don't know, a couple grand a month in advertising revenue and trying to figure it out. And in April of the following year, I got an email from Patrick Collison, the CEO of Stripe, who asked if he could acquire Indie Hackers. So we met over brunch and talked about it and threw around some numbers. And the next day I said yes. And a month later, I was part of the team at Stripe full-time working alongside my brother. So I've been at Stripe now for almost two and a half years, far longer than I had run Indie Hackers on my own. It was only like nine months from founding to acquisition. So those are probably the two biggest differences. Now the situation that you're in, you're taking what started as a media product and turning it into a larger platform. And I've tried to do the same thing a little bit with uh, Software Daily, Software Engineering Daily and Software Daily. It's been quite hard. At this point, I don't really know if I'm a straight up media company. I don't know if I'm like aiming for a media company that's supplemented by technology. Can you give me some advice on how to go from a media company to a platform? I can't give you general purpose advice, but I can tell you what I did. And maybe try to like reverse engineer, like extract some lessons with the benefit of hindsight. But it's really hard to say if those lessons would work for you. For me, Any Hackers is very much still a media business. I mean, we still produce a ton of content. We still have the podcast, obviously, and that's all media. But at the same time, we've got this platform community type thing going on that was part of the vision from the very beginning. And that is content. It's just user-generated content. It's a bunch of people on the community forum asking each other questions and sharing tips with each other and helping each other out. And if I were to get it by a bus tomorrow, those people would still be there talking to each other. So I think that's the core of any sort of community is people who are empowered and able to help each other out. And I think at the end of the day, there are certain things that people are willing to do that with, and there are certain things that they're not. For what I'm working on, Indie Hackers, it's all about people starting internet businesses. It's all about people helping each other overcome these challenges. There's an almost inexhaustible number of conversations and content that people can generate and talk about in that field. People constantly feel lonely, they constantly feel frustrated, they constantly need help. They're there for the long term, they build up a profile, they invest, they wanna share what they're doing and ask others for help. When they learn enough, they wanna sort of flip the script and help others who are below them. And so, in some ways it's, I don't wanna say it's easy, but it's easier than many other fields where I've seen people try to start communities. Because let's take software engineering, for example. Can you build a community around software engineering? Of course, there's lots of people who built communities around software engineering, but the conversations are going to be different. So Stack Overflow, for example, you could call that a community. It's certainly a community, but the, probably the default way of using Stack Overflow is to sort of ask a drive-by question. Hey, I've got this issue. I need it resolved. Let me ask a question because I've exhausted every other resource on the internet. If you get a response, great, you go away for another year until you have another question and you can't find the answer on your own. You're not really an invested member of the community. There are some people who are like, super stack overflow users who answer tons of questions and are really bought into the gamification and really like helping. But that's not, I would say, the majority use case of the site. So I think it really depends on what market you're in, what problem you're solving, what you want your, what you want your community to be, to be based around. Just like the essence of a normal average conversation, 
sort of dictates how easy it is to build a community and how easy is it to get it started. Andy Hacker is like, I just followed the Reddit playbook. I created a forum. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I made a bunch of fake threads. I made a bunch of fake accounts. I talked to myself a lot. Then I would send those conversations out over email. Every now and then I would trap a real person into a conversation with like three of me. And after enough time, there are two people talking to a bunch of me. Then there are three people talking to a bunch of me. I think every community looks somewhat like this to begin with. It's like the creator of the community doing something that doesn't scale, something that's a ridiculous amount of work that's not sustainable, just to recruit people and keep them engaged and make it a great experience for them. And then eventually, at some point, the flip scripts, the script flips, and everybody's sort of sustaining themselves. But it takes a long time to get there. Even with the Indie Hackers community, I still put in a significant amount of effort to make sure the community is a great place. We have a community manager, and you, in my opinion, should never really stop doing that. It just becomes easier over time. Probably the last tip that I would give is I think you want to start small with any sort of community. You basically want to shrink both time and space in such a way that your community feels active and lively because any sort of community is just based around social connections. And if people feel that the social connection is not there and it's not active, they're going to immediately assess this community is not valuable and they're not going to come back. So I will post on Stack Overflow because I feel like it's active and I'm going to get a response. If I don't think I'm going to get a response, why would I be part of that community? Or I'll show up to like a running group on Saturdays because I feel like other people are going to show up. And if it was just me by myself or, you know, not enough people for me to make friends, then why would I show up to that running group as opposed to just running by myself? So if you want to restrict the size of your community, sort of the space, that would be something like if you're going to have a party, have it in a very small room. If only 10 people are going to come, don't have a party in like an auditorium if you're going to only invite 10 people because it's going to feel dead. Right. Whereas if we had a party here, like it would feel great with 10 or 15 people. So that's kind of the temporal component or that's the sorry, spatial component of shrinking it online. What that looks like is, I don't know, instead of starting like a gigantic forum with like 10 different sections on your discourse forum, just have one section on the discourse forum where there's not that much room for people to post in all sorts of different places. Otherwise, every place is going to look dead. Right. Just start with something really small. Let that get to the point where it feels crowded, then overflow into like a second category page or something. Then there's a temporal component, which is sort of restricting the time at which your community exists. One difficult thing with doing that online is people tend to start forums and chat rooms. These things are always online. They always exist. And so you're really like greatly multiplying the amount of like effort and energy that needs to go into make the, making that community not feel dead. Whereas offline communities usually are very temporarily restricted. They'll be like, we have a meeting time and a place, right? We're going to meet on the third Saturday. We're going to have poker on Wednesday night at six. It doesn't matter if no one's playing poker at any other time, right? If they're all there at Wednesday at six, it feels like a lively thing. And so I've seen communities start online where people are like, okay, instead of starting an online forum or a message board or something, what we're going to do is we're going to pose one question every Friday and you know, everyone who's in the community is going to come answer this question and discuss it. And then the community doesn't exist outside of that. And so everyone sort of thinks, oh, this community's thriving, even though it only has like 15 or 20 people, because it feels like it's thriving because it's been temporarily and spatially restricted. So I think that's sort of the best hack to sort of get a community off the ground. From there, you just like slowly grow and put in lots of effort to get it to be bigger. So one of the themes of your podcast and building an online business in general is when do you delegate and how do you delegate? And I've had some conversations with you over the years about as you are taking this media thing slash platform thing and you really enjoy doing it by yourself, and you've got some traction by yourself, but you start to identify, maybe I should be outsourcing this thing. Maybe I should be delegating this thing. Maybe I should be working with somebody else on this thing. And 
half the time it feels like that could be great. But the other half of the time, you're like, then I would have to spend so much time managing this person. I would have less time for mobile chess and, yes. you know, less time for reading random books. And, you know, part of the value of the indie hacker idea is you have total independence. Like, basically, the only employees you have are SaaS products and for many of the companies that you talk to. Have you found that delegating saves you time or you end up spending more time on things like management issues or... What's the trade-off there? So I went into this whole indie hacker business very much on the side of, I want to work alone. I had almost always worked alone, basically in my room as a freelance web developer or on my own, or on my own startups. I didn't like the idea of having to manage people. It sounded like a swamp that you could easily get stuck in and lots of unpleasant things could happen and it might not necessarily make you more efficient. I didn't like the idea of this business that I'd created on my own suddenly feeling like a real job because I had the responsibility of someone else's paycheck and someone else is coming to work. If I want to not work for a week, how can I tell my employee not to work for a week or that I'm going to you know, disappear for a week, but they have to keep going. It just felt like there are lots of downsides to doing this. I've since changed my position on this. I think that I had a lot of basically fears that weren't founded in any real experience. It was just fear of the unknown. I had never done this before and therefore I assumed a lot of bad things that aren't necessarily true. And through talking to so many different founders, I've heard so many different perspectives on experiences that people have had with hiring. I was talking to a friend who said she will never hire again because she hired two people and they were both terrible hires. They did exactly what you said. They drained her of her energy and her time. She spent so much time managing them and trying to help them and they were messing things up for her. And she moved marginally faster in some ways, but so much slower in other ways and she's just done. I've made bad hires myself, but I've also made some really amazing hires who were like a godsend, who... Like, for example, our community manager with ND Hackers, Rosie Sherry, she, I basically don't tell her anything. She just does her thing. She just knows what to do. So, like, the forum will be much better. There'll be all sorts of connections being made. She's reaching out to people, getting them to participate, curating the thread. She's cleaning up spam. She's, like, taken hold of our Twitter account in the last month because it seems like a fun project for her. And she's, like, grown our Twitter impressions by, like, 3x. She's, like, putting together other webs. She's just doing all sorts of crazy stuff that like I don't necessarily have to oversee and I can just trust that she does a good job She's because proactive. she does. She's proactive. I feel like it's, I've hired like another one of me, just like cloned myself and I can of course trust another one of me to do good things because it's another one of me. But she's another one of me who also brings a different perspective so she's doing good things that another one of me would never do. So I'm now bought into this whole Silicon Valley mindset of like hire the best people, hire, hire well. I'd heard that for so many years. I was like, yeah, of course you wanna hire well but like the difference between hiring someone who's amazing and hiring someone who's just sort of average and is going to need a lot of management and a lot of handholding is staggering. I think you could easily double or triple your effectiveness by hiring one great person. Yeah. You've tried a lot of different things within the Indie Hackers platform. And sometimes when I look at Indie Hackers, I think about Quora because Quora has tried a lot of different things in a singular platform. And the things that don't work, they rebranded or they throw it to the side or they phase it out or whatever they're pretty good at trying stuff and then phasing it out i guess facebook is kind of like this too they're kind of a one person development team they're certainly a smaller development team though what's your philosophy around experimentation I do a lot of experimentation and yeah i'm a one person developer team but i'm gonna be hiring soon i'm very excited about that it's pretty hard to build a social network by yourself 
I think you have to experiment. At the end of the day, especially if you're building like some sort of consumer app, something that's social, there's all sorts of second order effects, unintended consequences from the things that you do that you can't predict. And so even things that you don't intend to be experiments end up being experiments because they don't work out. Right? There have been plenty of times, for example, earlier this year, I tried to sort of reskin indie hackers and make it work with a more Twitter-like mechanics. So instead of being forum-like where there's these discussions you have to click into, it was more of like a feed and you can sort of just scroll and read things and people did not like it. And it accomplished everything on my checklist. It like had people making more posts and those posts were getting more responses. But then there are all these like weird second order effects that I didn't intend where it's like instead of one post on the forum getting like 100 responses and everybody comes to the website seeing that at the top and saying, oh, this site's lively and active. Look, this post has 100 responses. Well, now the responses are spread across more different posts. And so like every post has like seven responses. And I'm like, oh, that's exactly what I want. Now everybody's getting responses. But people who come to the site are like, oh, this place feels pretty dead. I'm not going to come, right? So then the traffic drops. I'm like, oh, I had no idea that would happen. So that's an experiment. I tried it out. I need to revert it. Sometimes you don't even know why an experiment failed. And there are some things that I've built that I just built out of order. So one of the first things that I built after joining Stripe was this giant directory of products. So you could basically say, hey, I'm Jeff. I'm working on Software Engineering Daily. Let me create a page for my product. And then you had this cool timeline that I designed where you can like basically post updates to your timeline. I was like, this would be so cool if people had this. And it is cool. People do have it. And I think it is great. But at the time, I had no way to connect that to the rest of the site. It was just like a product design faux pas on my part where people didn't really want to use the directory and browse products and read these updates. And I just kind of let it languish for like a year and a half while I was working on other things. And then finally maybe four or five months ago, found a good way to connect it back to the rest of the website. And now it's like the fastest growing part of the website. It's doing really well. People are posting all sorts of updates to their timelines and people are commenting and liking on it. That's milestones. Yeah, that's the milestones. I've used it. Exactly. People, so you're can, see, people can see my, my yeah, stuff. People can see your stuff. And if you go back and look at the older products, like some people would post 10 things and that's get no likes. That's a great product. It works really well. I've gotten better, I think, as a product designer over time at understanding like what people want and how they'll behave. But it's definitely been a lot of trial and error to get there. Wait, so why didn't that product work initially? So if you think about the way that, maybe the best way to explain it is by explaining what does work. So the milestones feature on Indie Hackers is kind of a leaderboard that sits at the top of the forum. It's almost like Product Hunt, where it resets every day. And anyone who has a product page can post a milestone, which is just sort of an achievement they've made to their timeline, exactly. So you might say, hey, I just got, you know, I just reached the million download mark, or I just got my hundredth sign up or something, or just made my first dollar from a paying customer. And people love reading the Milestones leaderboard and saying, oh, this is a really cool accomplishment. Let me tell this person congratulations. Or I want to ask how they did it because I also want to land a sponsor or whatever the oh, Milestone is. But without is. any traffic, you didn't have incentive for people to post their Milestones because there's no automatic distribution? I didn't have the readers. And so I had people posting and they would post Milestones. There just wasn't like a Milestone leaderboard where people could go to read this. People don't have a good way to browse it. So you would have to, if you wanted to read what somebody was posting to their product page, Go to the product directory, search for some product that you like. You might say, oh, I want to find somebody who's working on something in e-commerce that's making at least $10,000 a month. Then it would filter. You'd click that. Then you'd have to read their individual updates. So most people's updates weren't getting any likes or comments because very few people were doing this. Now, it doesn't matter who you are. All of your updates get piped to a single feed. That feed is visible on the homepage. So everybody who visits Indie Hackers will see it. And now your posts have some degree of visibility. So I think that was a sort of a... You know, just a product design faux pas on my part. And I had some good ideas, but this is a couple of years ago. And I think it took me, you know, a lot of trial and error and other experiments before I really understood how to, you know, take these ideas and wrap them in a package that the actual user base would like. So there's a lot of stuff that went into that. Like, for example, the leaderboard mechanic, 
is really important. That's one of the biggest things I learned from my attempt at redesigning the website to look like Twitter. People actually don't want you to have a website that's very egalitarian. They don't want all the likes and comments to be spread out evenly over all the different content. If you're Stack Overflow, to go back to that example, or maybe even Quora, that's kind of fine because most of your traffic is coming from search. People are just sort of doing these drive-by searches. They see an answer, they leave. But if you're more of a dedicated community where regulars hang out all the time, at the end of the day, the best posts need to get the most attention. The best milestones need to get the most attention. And like the really low quality posts, even though it feels bad to me as a creator to see them not get responses, like you probably don't want anyone to really see those. And so it's better to sort of have a leaderboard format, have the best posts sort of rise to the top and stick there like you see on Reddit or Hacker News than it is to sort of spread out the love. And so, you know, I'm, I'm constantly wrangling with this problem of like, well, thousands of people are posting milestones, but not thousands of people can get responses because they don't have time or the space, excuse me, to show all those milestones on the homepage. How can I do that effectively? And like the leaderboard mechanic is just show the best ones and have everybody sort of compete to get to the top and don't feel so bad that not everybody wins because everybody sort of, there's a whole bunch of psychology that goes into why it works and why people are okay with it. But generally speaking, people in any social setting will tend to copy what they see working. If you live in like a tribe or something and you see, you know, Mary is cracking open coconuts with like a rock that she's found, you're going to be like, I'm going to crack open coconuts. That seems to work. If you're on an internet forum and you see someone getting to the top of the leaderboard because they're being helpful and they're being, you know, they're explaining their post rather than just posting something and leaving, then you'll say, oh, I'm going to be helpful and explain what I do because that seems to be working for them. And so like this whole leaderboard mechanic has all these inbuilt advantages that are super helpful that I now understand a lot better that beforehand I didn't understand at all. And so it's like just through experimentation and constantly tweaking and building the site, I'm learning all this different stuff about product development and how to build a social app that in the beginning I had no idea about. And I was sort of just guessing and checking. Today's episode is sponsored by Datadog, a cloud scale monitoring service that provides comprehensive visibility into cloud hybrid, and multi-cloud environments with over 250 integrations. Datadog unifies your metrics, your logs, and your distributed request traces in one platform so that you can investigate and troubleshoot issues across every layer of your stack. Use Datadog's rich, customizable dashboards and algorithmic alerts to ensure redundancy across multi-cloud deployments and monitor cloud migrations in real time. Start a free trial today, and Datadog will send you a t-shirt. You can visit softwareengineeringdaily.com slash datadog for more details. That's softwareengineeringdaily.com slash datadog, and you will get a free t-shirt for trying out Datadog. Thanks to Datadog for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Do you feel like your creative identity is tied to indie hackers or do you want to expand as a creator or an artist are there other mediums that you as you Cortland allen want to get into totally i watch a lot of anime jeff i love anime i love storytelling in general i love movies i love great tvs but like i'm kind of a snob i don't want to watch mediocre stuff i don't like watching bad stuff And I find myself when I'm watching television or movies or anime, just critiquing like little storytelling choices like that that I just think are inefficient or like not good or not as engaging or as good as it could be. And so a part of me is like, what right do I have to sit around critiquing stuff if I've never written a story in my life? So a huge part of me is like, 
would love to tackle the challenge of being a storyteller, being a writer, being a creator at some point in my life. On the flip side, I think there's a lot of wisdom to sticking to your area of expertise. I put in so many years into learning how to code, learning how to design, learning how to market and sell, learning how to build apps. Uh, and I built up a pretty like significant skill set there. And to just toss that all aside and walk into some other field and be totally green might be unwise, but at the same time, it would be pretty fun. So when is when, when is, is that, that going to happen? happen? You know, probably not until, not until I'm done with the indie hackers phase of my life, which I don't see ending in the foreseeable future. Like the flip side of all of this is that if you, you gotta have a hobby, I have hobbies, but my hobbies are more so like they're soothing hobbies. You know, I don't know if my oh, hobby yeah. can be just as mentally taxing and just as much work as my full time job. At the end of the day, coding and, and building an app is pretty taxing. And being a writer, honestly, is not that different. There's not that much variety. If you're a writer, you're probably huddled over your computer all day the same way that I am. So I don't want my hobby to be the same thing. The hobbies that I actually have now are like cooking. So at least I go to my kitchen or you mentioned playing chess on my phone. So I'll go on long walks and play chess or hanging out with friends and traveling. I'm going camping in a couple weeks in the Guadalupe Mountains. So those are hobbies that are very different than my full-time job. But I think if I ever switch over to writing, that'll be like a full-time thing. You know, there will be nothing else that's my, my main focus. The other thing to think about is that there are a ton of advantages that you can accrue by sticking with one thing and sort of taking it to the next level. So one of the people that I interviewed on the podcast is Chris Savage of Wistia. And he was talking about in his early days how they were coming up with the idea for their business and how people would come to them and be like, hey, you guys are the video guys. You know a lot about video. Help me with this problem. And the reason that kept happening, they kept having opportunity present itself to them is because they had established their reputation as being the video guys because they were the best at video and sort of the social circles that they ran at. And no one else really knew anything about video in 2004 compared to what they knew. And I think a lot about indie hackers and the advantages that it has there aren't really a lot of like competing social networks for founders out there. There certainly aren't any as big as indie hackers. And when you are kind of at the top of anything, it's all it's just it's the leaderboard effect basically. You get an outsized amount of attention, almost an undeserved amount of attention and focus and opportunities. And so I keep thinking about, you know, how far can that really go? Like what is the craziest future that it looks like if indie hackers as well on every front? Even when I joined Stripe, I think my vision for indie hackers was I want to be an indie hacker myself, right? I just want something that will pay my rent, that will give me the freedom to, I don't know, live wherever I want and work whenever I want. Like I was a tried and true indie hacker. Then I joined Stripe and Patrick was like, how big can this be? You know, can you have 200,000 people visiting this every single day? And I literally never thought like that. I hadn't even crossed my mind a single time. And then I started crunching the numbers and thinking about strategy and realized like it's actually possible. And if I think this thing is good for the world, then you know, it's it's hard to make the argument that I shouldn't try to bring it to more people and shouldn't try to make it bigger while also keeping it, you know, at the same quality or better. And then I started realizing like all the different advantages that could accrue if Indie Hackers is super big, right? It's like meaningful for me. It's meaningful for the people who are part of it. The community is more helpful, basically, the bigger it gets. Because then, for example, people who are more skilled at business come in, investors come in, people help each other out more. It's like more of a thing with a capital T. And so it's, it's really hard to get away from that. I feel like a, like one of those snowballs rolling down the hill and getting bigger as it goes. And at some point, it's like, oh, it's big enough. I'll just walk away. But I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. I think it could be much bigger, much better. And probably the more things I build, the more things I add, and the better things get, the more ideas I have for how any hacker should grow and change over time. So it's, it's really hard to get away from that. That's the advantage of being in a large and growing market. It really is. I think... Picking the right market is is really one of those durable 
pieces of advice. Even if you build the wrong product in the right market, that's many times better than building the right product in the wrong market. I have a whole order of operations for how you should pick what you want to work on. The first thing for me is founder product fit, which has become a more discussed term of late. I think no matter what you work on as a founder, you should always work on something that like you will enjoy working on. Because if you don't, you're going to be up against a bunch of people who do enjoy working on that thing. Like if you want to get up and build a better indie hackers than me today, then you're going to have to literally wake up every day and put in like hours and hours and hours and days and days and weeks and months of work happily doing it because that's what I'm doing. And if you don't have that, then like it doesn't matter what strategies or tricks you follow, you're not going to be doing like the very basics. So I think that should be like the number one thing you do as a founder, figure out what you actually will enjoy doing day to day. But then after that, market. If you're not in the right market, if you're serving like, you know, some sort of very shrinking segment of people or there's too much competition or it's just like there's so many different variables with the market. But if you're in the wrong market, it's like you're just fighting an uphill battle and it's going to feel like a slog every day. And even if you love it, pretty soon you won't love it because it's not going to be working out for you. I do feel like some of the people you've interviewed on your show, by the way, I seriously listen to your show. almost. I, I don't know, but not every episode. Certainly, yeah, what we were talking about with, if you publish more episodes, you would just be cannibalizing my listens. I don't, I think I'm hitting my, my rate limit for what, how much Indie Hackers podcast content I will consume. But a it's, week. Two a week, yeah, roughly. I mean, sometimes I go into the back catalog because there's some episodes I've skipped, but it's it's something I want to listen to on a regular basis. Like, I definitely would need my my episodic dosage of, of indie hackers, and it's totally distinct. But I do feel like there are some people who you've interviewed on the show who don't really care about the market that they're in, but they fall in love with the just the idea of running a business and the autonomy of it and the operations of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is certainly something that surprised me about software engineering daily. There's so many like stupid operational things. And initially I'm like, this is a big inconvenience. Then over time, I'm like, why do I like doing this? <laughs> You're addicted to the operations. It would, it's not necessarily the operations, but it's just the fact that there is this weird engine that I've built. And I'm kind of like, I'm, yeah, I'm kind of into this and dealing with the little, the minutia of it yeah. becomes fun. Building a business is almost like, it's almost like a programming project, right? Where yeah. you work on something for long enough, there's like all these different classes and modules that you built and all sorts of different little levers you can pull and knobs you can turn. And it's like, it's just something fun about holding all that complexity in your head and keeping this machine running. Anything about how the sausage is made, like some random element of, of indie hackers that is one of those pieces of minutia that people might not expect? Oh, God. I'm like I'm like the opposite. I don't like the minutia. Any sort of cruft that's not permanently pushing the business forward, I look at as like a drag on my velocity and my trajectory and where things can go. So for example, I'm really bad at checking my email. I'm deliberately bad at checking my email. And I feel bad when I check my email because there are people in there who I haven't responded to for a week and they had something that was somewhat urgent, but I just don't want to spend four or five hours a week checking email when I could spend one hour a week checking email and those extra four hours like writing code for the site. So I love writing code, but I wouldn't consider writing code minutia because whenever I build a feature, that thing is there and in perpetuity forever helping people out on the website. The podcast is another thing where it feels like sometimes really fun to record, but at the same time, it's an endless slog because no matter how many episodes I release, no matter how good an episode is, by next week, it's basically chopped liver and I've got to record another episode, right? Even if I do a better job recording episodes, it just raises the bar and the expectations that people have. And it kind of feels like a treadmill that I can never get off of. 
So for me, I don't like the operations. I'm constantly thinking about how can I hire someone to do this operation for me? How can I get someone else to title the podcast episodes or add the show notes or write the descriptions? Can I hire somebody to check my email for me? Can I hire someone to do all the tiny little friction things so I can just do the thing that I think has the most value? This is so perplexing to me that you say that because I, how is writing code the best use of your time? I mean, it's, it's not. A, That's why I'm hiring a developer as well. Oh, okay. So are you going to become the chief design officer, or CPO, something? Indie Hackers is not nearly big enough where it's not valuable for me to write code, especially being like with the particular skill set that I have, I can write code faster than a lot of people because it's like I can do the design and like the sort of feature mechanics in UX and do the back end and the front end pretty quickly. There doesn't need to be like a meeting of like six different people to come together to do this. And so it's pretty efficient for me to write code. I also know the code base since I wrote it. So that's pretty efficient. But like theoretically, there's some point in the future where I have like six or seven developers and it's like I'm primarily better off just like designing the feature or something. And then at some point, you know, I could hire a designer or like, you know, a product person and they could design the feature, et cetera. But I think early on in a business's life cycle, usually the founder should be the product person. And if you don't have any co-founders who can code, like you probably need to be the person writing code. I mean, I agree with you, but it does, software engineering is pretty well defined, right? Like you could be, and like the, I mean, I guess there are a lot of finer po- touches to indie hackers. That's what I'll say is like, there are all these little edges that you've sanded in very pleasing ways. I mean, a lot of it is just experimental. I. People, you have little animations and things. People frequently request that I build a mobile app. I have no plans to build a mobile app anytime soon because I just think, well, that would basically drag my productivity into the mud because now every time I build one thing, I have to build it twice. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, the website is basically a huge experiment, right? Is it a forum? Is it a media company? Like, what is it? Wait, but you're always thinking about mobile experience. Why don't you just have a, like it's a React Native app? basically or like a it's just friction right why friction, don't i just yeah. like have the responsive design do the bare minimum and then i'm free to move as fast as i can iterating on the website so for example with the feature like milestones like that was a result of me trying lots of different things and learning from those things scrapping them and eventually arriving at something that seems to work really well like the milestones feature is growing like crazy every week and i think that's the result of all the experimentation and if i put any processes in place that would slow down that experimentation i might never have gotten to this feature or maybe it would have taken three years to get there, right? If I basically had, you know, a small team of engineers and I was telling them, hey, build this thing in a sort of a waterfall way and they just like went and built it, like how would they feel if I just scrapped their thing, you know, the next week because I thought it wasn't good enough or I was constantly telling them, you know, mid-process, hey, I've learned this new thing, um, this new principle, this new idea, we should completely change the plan for this feature and build it in a different way. So I think like Indie Hackers and the product is in such an early experimental phase that it helps to be the founder sort of, I hate the term visionary because it sounds so like pompous, but it's like essentially you have to have a vision for where the product's going to go. And it's hard. Like it's, it's easy to, to hire someone who can code. It's hard to hire someone who can like code and have the product vision that you have, who understands the market, who understands your users and customers and the history of all the things you've tried, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it'll be a while before it's most efficient for me to outsource that job completely. And you th- you think you'll just feel it in the numbers over time and feel it in the engagement over time. When do you really step on the gas and hire a bunch of people and start amping up exactly. those dimensions? Because I think like, Indie Hackers has been growing, but it hasn't been growing like a rocket ship. It's not like hockey stick growth, right? There have been lots of things we've tried that didn't grow at all. And so with something like Milestones, for example, like that's working super well. We just introduced groups. Groups are working super well. The podcast is growing. 
a lot of these things are pretty mapped out and now I'm just making incremental improvements and we're polishing these things and taking them in like the obvious directions. Like that's when you step on the gas and you really just ramp it up. But there are other things that aren't working quite as well, like our written content we're constantly experimenting with. Right now I'm experimenting with like getting rid of like our whole separate blog and just sort of rolling that content into the forums or a blog post just like normal sort of native forum posts. Like that's a whole experiment. I'm not really ready to step on the gas and hire people to make that go faster because I don't know if I don't even know if it's going to work. And if you look at bigger companies, a lot of times that's how bigger companies experiment too. They don't put the entire company on a totally new initiative unless it's like Google Plus or something. They'll have like a kind of a skunkworks team of small people, a small team who can move fast, experiment, figure it out, go through that sort of, you know, that phase where you don't know how it's going to work because you just need to be able to iterate quickly. And for that, you need a pretty small team. We were talking about games earlier, and you play a lot of StarCraft. There's a metagame in StarCraft, right? Like, the metagame changes over time. I think this is happening with media where, I mean, the metagame certainly changed since I started Software Engineering Daily. I think it's changed in my favor where more people are listening to podcasts. But it's changing in other directions. Like, there's more content than ever. There's more podcast content than ever. YouTube's gotten really, really, really good. There's so much good written content out there. You know, Hacker News has really become prominent. What are the metagame changes that you're identifying right now? I think there are two ways to look at things. And one of them is sort of a a top-down approach. You're looking at you have these well-defined categories, okay, media companies or communities, like, and then you look at the established players, what are they doing, what's going on, and then you end up with like names for certain things that like only five or ten years ago didn't have a name. Like a social feed is a thing, right? And there are mechanics to how a social feed works, but like 15 years ago, no one would have ever said that, put those two words together, social feed, like what does that even mean? The other approach is sort of the bottom-up analyze things from first principles approach. We just try to figure out like the essential isolated facts of the world. Like what is true about human psychology? What is true about what makes an app work or not work? And then you try to construct something that works the best for what you're doing based on those principles. I'm much more of that sort of person. I don't like to copy what others are doing. I don't like to pay too much attention to the metagame. I want indie hackers to be the best thing that it is. And if that means it doesn't fit into any particular category that has a name, if it's not a media company or a social network, then it's just not either of those things. And some of the best websites that I respect and look up to have also kind of done the same thing. So there's one that I'm sure many of your readers will be familiar with called Dev, Dev.2, started by Ben Halpern. Dev is unlike any other website that I've ever seen. Like, what is it? Is it a blogging platform? Is it a forum? Right? It kind of looks like a feed on the homepage, but you follow people as well. It's like, who knows what it is, right? They're just doing what works for them and they're not really caring what anyone else does. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And I'd like to do the same thing for indie hackers. And what's kind of cool, like I'm in this position now where I, I can build for an existing user base where I've never been in that position before. I've started so many different things that never really got that many users or had that much traction. But whatever I build now, I'm pretty certain that like a few thousand people are going to at least try it out. Totally. And so like, I'm gonna get to that point, like no matter what. So I can kind of just like look at the data and make data-driven decisions. Whereas in the past, it was more like lick my finger, put it in the air and like guess which way the wind is blowing and hope things go right. So now I can kind of like look at my own user base and use that to inform the decisions I make rather than looking around what others are doing and just sort of copying their features. I'll give one example, which is that there are a lot of maker communities nowadays. Like two years ago, there were no maker communities really. Now there are a ton of maker communities. So Product Hunt has one called Product Hunt Makers. There's one called Maker Log. There's one called Work in Progress and like plenty others that like you've never heard of. And every one of them has the same exact paradigm where it's like people post their tasks. 
And so you would go on there, Software Engineering Daily, and you'd say, oh, today I needed to wake up. That's a task. Today I needed to edit this podcast episode, prepare for this one. And it's just like these social feeds of like thousands of people posting their tasks. And like, they're not bad. I like, especially MakerLog, I'm a big fan of it. But at the same time, I'm looking at these tasks and I'm like, I don't really want to read somebody else's task list. Like maybe one specific person, I want like the high level tasks that they're doing, but I don't really want to read their task list. But how do like all of these products end up with the exact same feature that like I don't particularly find compelling? And in my opinion, it's probably not a coincidence. It's probably people looking at what other products are doing and saying, oh, that's a cool idea. Let me import that to what I'm doing. I think that's kind of the nature of humanity. We're all copy machines. We're all intrinsically wired to copy what we see other people doing. I'm wired the same way, so are you. It feels good to copy and do things that other people are doing. It feels bad to sort of branch out on your own and take a risk. But I think if you can sort of build up enough of that institutional base level first principles knowledge, then you can feel more confident taking risks and designing and building features that no one else ever has just because they match what you were trying to do and fit that like a glove. How are your own media consumption habits changing? I'm pretty deliberate about how I consume media. For example, I'm going on more podcasts recently. I would like to do that. When I go on a podcast, I would like to be able to like refer to things that are happening in the world and talk about what other communities are doing. And so I'll spend more time deliberately reading about what's going on versus when I'm in heads down development mode. I don't really care about what's going on in the world. It's all noise to me. I don't care if I miss the news cycle. I don't care what Trump's doing. I don't care what's going on in the rest of tech. I just need to get this feature out the door. I need to do what I'm working on. And so I don't know if there's any greater trend that's influencing my media consumption habits more so than like what's going on in my life and how I need to to sort of reconfigure things. I guess podcasts have been pretty influential. However, I think podcasting is pretty much the new blogging. I don't really read that many blog posts nowadays. If I see a blog post on Twitter, I might click it and file it away and some bookmark tool, but they don't ever come back and read it. Whereas podcasts, I'll put them on my playlist and like I will guaranteed get to that at some point in the future. Audiobooks are big for me for the same reason. Like I can easily listen to these things when I'm cooking or walking to work or uh, doing pretty much anything. So I think a lot of my media consumption happens over audio now, whereas five, 10 years ago, it was almost all reading. There's so many people bending over backwards trying to figure out what podcasting turns into next and if it's related to audio interfaces or, or sorry, voice interfaces or if there's something else that's going to change. You have any bold predictions there? I have none. <laughs> Sorry none. to disappoint yeah. you. I would love to. In general, I think it would be good for more people to make predictions about the future. Number one, I think it's kind of fun. Number two, I think it forces you to really think. Like I have kind of a, a yearly tradition of, it started with like a New Year's resolution, but it just ended up ballooning into this like yearly New Year's planning. And so like maybe 10 years ago, I started doing this and my New Year's plan will be like, all right, first figure out what you think you're going to be up to five years from now. And then think about like what you're going to need to do this year and the next year and the next year to get to where you want to be five years from now. And it's endlessly entertaining for myself to go back and read what I wrote five years in the past about what my life would be like today, what my friends' lives would be like today, and what the world would be like today. Because I would make all these predictions and like oftentimes they were wrong, but I think sometimes they were right. You know, and sometimes I made good decisions in the past that helped me get to where I am now. So I don't have any like bold predictions about where podcasting is going. I probably should. But I would like to, to make more predictions like that. Do you make bold predictions about anything these days? Or you just you just actualize your predictions by testing them? I, that's in, exactly in what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make my vision of what I want indie hackers at least to be a reality. So I want to like kind of shape the world. I would love for a significantly larger number of people to start internet businesses. 
I would love for them to spend more time getting help and talking to each other online. Like right now, it's a very isolated world, right? You might sit on your computer working on whatever Jeff Meyerson works on, you know, 24 hours a day. Well, maybe not that much, but, you know, six days a week, whatever your work schedule is, and never talk to another person about what you're working on. I would like in the future to be sort of the default method to be collaborative, to be sharing what you're working on. I'm trying to create basically new habits and founders and make it by its own nature a very social thing because I think the worst thing that a founder can do is isolate themselves and that's the default. If you connect to other people, if you share what you're working on, if you share what you know and your tips and your advice and you also receive those tips and advice from other people, you're just going to be more successful. You're going to have more fun doing it. You're going to get luckier because you're going to have other people who can help. It's just better in pretty much every way, but that reality is not really true today or at the very least it's true and sort of a you know, not equally distributed fashion where like the most social capable networking type people are really good at it, but like everyone else doesn't really have a platform that helps push them to do this thing. And so in a lot of ways, I think with Indie Hackers, I'm trying to create this reality. I'm trying to change the way that people behave. And so it's, yeah, less about predicting the future and more about doing that whole cliche thing of creating the future. But it's hard. And who knows, like the chances of success of the role being exactly like I want it to be are pretty low, but it's definitely fun trying. I think it's kind of like, in some ways, like Peloton. You know, Peloton, people go there to get a bike ride, but then people find out that the instructors are inspiring. And I think a lot of people go to Indie Hackers to initially find better tactics for running an internet business or just top of the funnel, figuring out the basics of what internet businesses are. There's a lot of inspiration on that side, and that's one of your your focuses, actually. You've really focused on the whole idea of being inspired. And, you know, it's something I, I can I, I like about the site is that it's it's almost agnostic of the business. It's more about business as one particular creative avenue where one looks for inspiration and looks for ways to paint a better picture and the picture that you're painting happens to be a business, but there's a very creative thread that runs through all of it. Yeah. I think a business can be anything. Like we kind of think of business as being like this very stuffy, boring, traditional profession. But like for me, a business is just a project that you're passionate about. That's also self-sustaining and that it generates enough revenue to allow you to continue to do it. And that's all a business is. Any other stuff is completely optional. If you want to spend your time, I don't know, graffitiing walls and that's what brings you passion as long as you find a a business model to attach to that so you can continue doing that without starving to death that's a business and like that's not what most people think about when they think about businesses but i would like to think that going into the future we'll sort of relax the stuffy definition and you'll see all sorts of fun cool inspiring stuff that people are doing and calling a business and i like you brought up the point about inspiration definitely wasn't my goal when i started indie hackers i was not like really even keen on what it meant to inspire someone. I was a little skeptical of any talk about inspiration, but like watching the website work, watching what happened when somebody would share their story with other people who wanted to do it and seeing that people actually were getting inspired and like making life altering decisions because someone else shared a story was mind blowing to me. And so like within the few months of launching Indie Hackers, I was like, okay, what is this inspiration thing? Like how is this actually causing people to change their lives? And like, what are the components of it? And so I try to work that into every podcast episode. I try to work that into features, like the Milestones feature is meant to be inspiring. You get an email in your inbox every day of a different indie hacker who accomplished something cool that's exciting. And you can tell them congratulations and you can hear their story. Like that's inspiring. 
The interviews on the website are inspiring. It's all meant to basically deliver the message to people that like, hey, you can do this. There are people who are like you who are doing this and it's worthwhile to do it. What have you learned about running a business from your time playing StarCraft? I played a lot of StarCraft. I played, God, I started playing StarCraft when I was in like seventh grade and I quit maybe four years ago. So what is that, like age 12 to like 28 <laughs> playing competitive StarCraft? I'm a competitive person. I love playing StarCraft. I don't know how much I learned about business by playing StarCraft. I think playing StarCraft was on some level a reflection of my work ethic and that I practiced so much. Or it could have been, you know, the the genesis of work ethic. Maybe I became a hard worker because I practiced StarCraft so much. Who knows? It's hard to say which one is true. The other thing I, I think that I got from it is the idea of iteration and cycles. And so in StarCraft, you have like these very tight feedback loops, right? You play a game within 10 to 30 minutes, you've lost that game or you've won that game. Instant feedback. Did you do well or did you do poorly? But even within a game, you're constantly building things and creating things and battling and things, you know, you go into a battle thinking you're going to win and you lose, right? Or you think you're going to, something's going to happen, something else happens. You get a good feedback loop and that helps you like adjust your strategy and basically reorient really quickly. With the business, Sometimes your feedback loops are super slow. You're like, oh, I have an idea for a company. It's going to do this, and the product can look like this, and it's going to have these features, and it's going to take me six months to get this out the door, right? And so you might take you like one, six months to get through one feedback loop just to figure out, oh, my idea was wrong, or the market was wrong, or it was the wrong time, et cetera, et cetera. The advantage like, is that if you go through feedback loops faster, if you iterate through that cycle faster, you get better. Right? So I was able to get like really good at StarCraft because I played so many games so quickly and constantly every time I played a game, I learned something. Whereas when I started my first companies, I did like the traditional wrong approach of having super slow feedback loops. So it would take me a long time to learn really concrete, realistic information. And it took me a while to realize that like you can start super small with a project or a company. Like you can do something that's just tiny, that takes you a day to get out the door and learn a ton from that. And you're gonna learn way more from that than you're gonna learn by sitting around planning and writing up hypothetical strategies for how the world's gonna work. Like just get something out there and test it out and then iterate on that and go through quicker and quicker feedback loops. So I think uh, if you look at why people get so, so good at games so quickly, why people are able to just improve at sports and games in general that have these super fast feedback loops and why people might start 10 businesses and never succeed. I think a lot of it has to do with iteration cycles. A lot of the people that I talk to on the podcast as well, who've been super successful, they're people who do things like 12 startups in 12 months where they constantly are releasing a new thing. You know, they're not happy just like working on one pet project and, you know, slogging it out for three years. And of course, everyone's heard like the few stories where that's been the case. But I feel like most of the people I talk to who've been successful, either they like worked on something small and iterated their way up to something big, or they just tried lots of different things built up a lot of skills, a lot of knowledge as a result of that, and then they were able to pick like a really good thing. Why do Koreans dominate StarCraft? Koreans dominate StarCraft because they have a culture, in my opinion, that is more facilitating of being good at video games. They take it more seriously. If you look at when Korea got broadband, like they have, I think they still have the fastest internet speeds in the world. I could be wrong about that, but for a long time they did. They're way ahead of the US in terms of internet speeds. When I was playing StarCraft as a kid, I would go home and sit on my computer alone and play StarCraft. When my Korean friends would talk about, you know, their friends playing StarCraft, they would go to an internet cafe after school in Korea and play StarCraft with all of their friends. And of course, what's going to happen when you have like a social situation where people are all doing the same thing and sharing tips and secrets with each other, they're going to get way better at it. And 
it's funny. That's kind of a parallel to what I want to do with indie hackers. Like I don't want founders to be building these things in isolation. I want people to be talking to each other and doing it socially because when information changes hands, you just do way better. I just read this book recently called The Secret of Our Success. Have you heard of it? It's a great book. It's basically this evolutionary biology book that argues that what makes people, what makes humans unique as a species has nothing to do, I mean, a little to do with our smarts, but it's mostly to do with the fact that we we experience what the author calls cultural evolution. And so we pass information down from one, one generation to the next very efficiently, and we're really good at doing that. But we're also good at doing a few other things that make this possible. So we tinker a lot. We try lots of different things. And we're really good at copying. This is kind of the essential mechanism that makes us humans. Like if a bunch of people go out in a tribe, I mentioned this earlier, and try something, like you will zone in on the person who's really good at something and you will copy them. And it's gotten to the point where we've evolved where like we basically can't do anything. Like if I drop you off in the wild somewhere, like you'll be dead in a week. Like you definitely can't make it. There's no human with a big enough brain to just like survive in the wild anywhere unless they've trained a lot, which basically means that they copied what others have done and learned from others. Like you can't even run really. Like if you go to, forgot what this tribe is called, but like they basically like run down gazelles and like hunt them. And it's like every other animal was just born knowing how to run. But if you want to run down a gazelle, what you need to do is look at like the elder person in your tribe and mimic his running technique which he mimicked from like the best runner when he was a kid and so on and so on back and forth like hundreds of generations, which involves like all sorts of weird stuff that you wouldn't even think about. Like the fact that humans are like less susceptible to heat exhaustion than gazelles. And so you need to run at the hottest time of day and you need to like run with an uneven gait and stop and start, right? Like you have to literally learn from others how to do something as natural as run because we just are copy animals. That's how we learn. So the upshot of all of this being that you know, if you put people into a, a social situation where they can see who's really good and copy them, like they're going to do that. And I think with StarCraft, that's exactly how it plays out. As a programmer, you think in objects. With MongoDB, so does your database. MongoDB is the most popular document-based database built for modern application developers and the cloud era. Millions of developers use MongoDB to power the world's most innovative products and services, from cryptocurrency to online gaming, IoT, and more. Try MongoDB today with Atlas, the global cloud database service that runs on AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud. Configure, deploy, and connect to your database in just a few minutes. Check it out at mongodb.com slash atlas. That's mongodb.com slash atlas. Thank you to MongoDB for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. You know what's funny is, I think one way that... I've seen this cultural, just tying together a few things we've talked about, but I think that one way this cultural evolution does happen in games or in competitive environments or certainly in the in the still small world of, of um, startups and, and technology companies and indie hacker businesses is through this metagame evolution. Like like even back back when I played poker, like poker is such a small game, you know? Like it's 52 cards, you know, 100 big blinds usually, and it's like the same game all the time. But the metagame changed all the time. And what I think that says is that it takes us so long as humans to actually explore a space confidently and reach the most superior 
version of that game. I mean, I, you're looking at chess a lot these days. I, I'm guessing Magnus Carlsen is like significantly better than anybody before him, right? Yeah, like, he's arguably the best chess player who's ever lived. But he has access to supercomputers, and like the metagame now for chess will be playing against the computer, studying the lines that the computer generates. And it's pretty fascinating. I'm like totally new to it. Like, but there are certain moves in chess that are named after like 16th century monks who <laughs> originated that move. And we can like look at them playing this move and we still call it by the same name as that monk. But there will probably be new moves and new patterns named after people who exist today where many centuries went by where there wasn't that much innovation because there's been like such a shift in the metagame. And if you read a chess book from 50 years ago, it was different. From 100 years ago, it was different. It just keeps changing. This is what confuses me about competition. So we were also talking about competition a little bit earlier. If the game space of chess remains not yet fully discovered, that says so much about how much greenfield opportunity there is in the universe, right? And yet some people like to indulge in the the competitive impulses of ourselves like you were talking about like you you like i mean we could talk about what competition actually means but you know the person-to-person competition there's something about person-to-person competition that is a fixed sum or a zero sum or an like a non-growing pie you win someone else has to lose yeah i don't know like what's the correct competitive framing if you like if you you say you like competition love it what what does that mean (laughs) that means i thrive on competition it means that like at a base level i find it entertaining and enjoyable but i also i guess in a more productive way am pushed to do more when i know that there's some sort of competitive aspect to it for example if i'm growing my podcast and basically like the darkness of space where it's just me by myself and my podcasts if i go from a thousand downloads to two thousand downloads like will i be happy about that i have no idea because i don't know if that's quote unquote good right what i define as good or bad is entirely subjective it's entirely relative to what numbers other people are getting and like that's kind of what i take satisfaction and it's not necessarily beating other people or you know, having them feel bad. It's more so knowing that like, I don't know, I just want some way to assess myself and it's really hard for me to do that without some reference point. And that reference point is other people. And I think that's the nature of competition. Do you think starting a business is, in terms of pop culture, do you think starting a business is becoming more normalized or is it becoming taboo? Both at the same time. Actually, I think starting a business, like being a non-business owner and transitioning into the state of having a business is becoming more normalized and isn't really taboo. I think owning a business and especially making lots of money is becoming taboo. Just the political climate that exists is a little bit more classist today than I would say it was in like the United States that I grew up in in the 90s. Back then in the 90s, you could release a movie like Richie Rich. unironically right oh this kid is rich and it's great and all of the poor kids want to play with this super rich kid who's and no one cares no one bats an eye parents take their kids to see that movie today that movie would probably not fly he would not be the hero he would be the you know de facto villain so i think there's something to be said about like obviously politically we're just more conscious of wealth disparity gradually gone that way over the last 20 years and a lot of that is inherently connected to business because people who own businesses typically make a tremendous amount of money because it's a tremendous source of leverage. That being said, I think the internet is this incredible democratizing force where now the barriers to building your own sort of business are much lower than they ever were, right? Like most of the people 
who will, for example, be demonized by the press, like Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg. These people are generally self-made billionaires. Like they didn't have like billions of dollars passed down to them. Like Jeff Bezos was, I believe, adopted and like made his fortune from nothing. And so it's kind of ironic that we live in, a, in an age where it's easier and more democratic for the average person to build something successful than it ever was in the past. But it's also frowned upon, whereas in the age where it was like, I don't know, robber barons passing down money to their kids, that was also the age in which business was looked upon as a more noble thing. How possible is it to build an indie hacker business as a non-software engineer these days? Increasingly possible. So I interviewed Ben Tossel. He runs MakerPad. He has an indie hacker business. It's very meta. The entire business is devoted to teaching people who don't know how to code how to build some sort of application by using Zapier or Airtable or Webflow or any of these tools that are helping non-developers like hook things up and connect them to different services on the internet. Um, he himself doesn't know how to code, and he used these different you know, quote-unquote no-code tools to build his website, and he's now using those to basically provide a living for himself. I want to interview that guy. You should interview Ben. He's great. Um, I think this is the future. At the end of the day, people tend to coalesce into similar needs. Like, for example, my mom wanted to build a, word, uh, a website, and I was telling her she should just use WordPress or something similar where you don't have to code. So many people have built blogs. If you're building anything that's blog-like at all, there's ways that you can do that without really knowing a ton about code. You'll need to hire a developer to build it for you. I think like the number of these tools is only going to increase. We're going to take the different tools and the different processes that we as developers tend to you know, reinvent from scratch whenever we're building apps, and we're going to have drag-and-drop tools to do a lot of that stuff. I think if you want to veer too far off the beaten path and do something super custom, if you want to build you know, a completely unique product, you're always going to need code. But at the end of the day, there's so many businesses, there's so many opportunities, so many niches that a founder can cater to on the internet that don't require a custom product that I think we're only going to see more and more people who are non-developers starting startups. Yeah, it's it's like those, you know, you used to hear about these well, I'm sure you probably still hear about these companies. The companies that start a landing page or a type form, and then they gradually, over time, build more and more functionality the type form or the landing page feeds into, and they gradually get there. Now you can just build a lot of functionality on that first day. I mean, I've been asking like people who work at bigger startups or bigger companies this question, just like, we know how to use these tools as MVPs, or we're learning how to use these tools as MVPs. Like, especially if you're a non-coder, yeah, you get started with Webflow or Airtable or whatever. But like, if you're a big company, do you hire no-code engineers? Like, what do you... I don't think so. I don't think you ever do that because I think big companies generally just go really deep on things. Like, if I think about my role as a founder, I'm wearing every hat. Like, I'm doing the marketing, the sales, I'm doing the customer support, I'm writing the code, designing the features, everything, which means I can't go that deep. I can only go so shallow because if I go too deep in any area, I'm neglecting some other important part of the business. When I look at a company, even looking at a company like Stripe from the inside, they're not really doing anything that I don't do as a solo founder. They're just doing it with, like, significantly more depth. They can hire specialists who can do the, like, the thing that I'm doing way better than I'm doing it with way more attention to detail. Like Google will have an engineer who's optimizing like one tiny corner of YouTube, for example. And if you're going to go that deep, why have someone who doesn't know how to code, right? Why not just hire a specialist who can tweak all the specifics of that thing? I think a lot of the tools for people who don't know how to code 
and people starting these no-code businesses are, are pretty rough around the edges. They, you know, they get the job done, but they're not like the best thing that you could build if you build it custom from scratch. I wonder if we'll get like if the way if these will turn into like code gen tools because if they turn into code gen tools, then you're it's all one and the same, right? You start with a Webflow thing and then you one click export it to a Rails app, and then your Rails developer can take it from there. Yeah, you know that seems like the way it'll go. Um, that seems to make a lot of sense. Although at the end of the day. I wonder how much it's in any of these, like there's so much psychology that goes around here where it's like, what are the incentives of Webflow to do that, right? If you're Webflow, you won't probably Webflow. won't, <laughs> you probably won't lock in. It won't be Webflow. Webflow will be the Oracle of this space. Yeah. I mean, I say that with, with the deepest love for Webflow, like they will own this space. I mean, for a very long, for some, some period of time, or not, not own it, but. Maybe they'll disrupt themselves. Maybe they, yeah, it could be. You have to. Last question. Give me your boldest prediction. I know you don't like making predictions these days, but your boldest prediction for how the indie hacker landscape will change in the next five years. My boldest prediction is going to be pretty optimistic because I'm hoping to be at least one part of this agent for change. But I think we're living, you know, if you examine sort of the market of being an indie hacker, we're living in a time where technology is more available than it's ever been. It's cheaper than it's ever been information is also cheaper and more available than it's ever been. It's There's never been as much written about how to start your own business online. There's never been as much shared. Like the number of companies that are sharing literally their exact playbooks of how they've done everything and the amount of revenue they're making is staggering. When 10 years ago, you would probably find like only a small handful. So I think it's becoming easier to start an indie hacker business than it's ever been. I also think there's lots of platforms built to support indie hackers and then these bootstrapped founders, including indie hackers. And there's also a lot of money of people of investors who are looking to finance these things. And so five years from now, I think we're going to be seeing not only more indie hackers, but we're going to be seeing like more mainstreamification of this. I wouldn't be shocked if there are colleges offering degrees for like, you know, the, the indie hacker degree, right? Put on, you know, this hat and this hat and this hat, learn these different skills, do that, right? I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see a shift in also like parents' attitudes to their children's career, career paths. Like right now, Everyone sort of assumes like you need to go to college, get a degree. That's sort of becoming less popular. I don't think it's going to shift dramatically in five years, but like maybe 10, 15 years from now, like parents are more excited to see their kids go to straight into the industry of starting startups as teenagers. You know, maybe five years from now, everyone's like getting their kids on the Lambda school and, and high school and who knows, right? So I think at the end of the day, the fact that it's becoming significantly more popular I wouldn't be shocked if we just see it infiltrate the mainstream, whereas right now it's not. Like People are not talking about bootstrapping internet businesses on TV sitcoms, really. It's kind of like a, the joke that someone like started something in their dorm room and they're going to be the next Zuckerberg, but that's a whole different class of startup. We're not seeing as much on the mainstream and people starting these smaller businesses that can sustain their lifestyle, but it's such a much more attainable goal for most people and so attractive to be able to start something that gives you your freedom and your ability to work with whoever you want, wherever you want, whenever you want, I'll be shocked if it doesn't infiltrate the mainstream, infiltrate the mainstream at some point in the near future. Not to open a can of worms, but you, you mentioned there's more and more investors looking to fund these kinds of businesses. The number of emails I get from investors who are like, hey, you've got a ton of companies that you introduce me to any standout companies. It's insane. There's a lot of people with money who would love to invest in high growth startups or even just small startups, sometimes just for fun because they like the aesthetic of doing it, but oftentimes because they think it's going to be lucrative. 
There are also these new, basically, accelerators that have propped up in the past few years, and including venture capitalists also who have like sort of an investment thesis of investing in smaller profit, revenue-driven companies before sort of user growth, traction-driven companies. So you've got NDVC, who's been doing this for a number of years. They're more of a traditional VC firm, but their thesis is around revenue-generating companies. Then you've got Earnest Capital, who started by Tyler Tringas and his partner, who was a guest on the Indie Hackers podcast. They're also investing in these smaller indie hacker businesses with different terms than you would see venture capitalists investing with. So they're not like... Yeah, dividends. I'm not sure the exact terms of all these different, because there's tiny seed as well. They have their own model. But essentially, it's very founder friendly. It's very slow growth friendly. It's not, I'm only going to get paid back if you exit your company for $200 million or a billion dollars. It's like, if you just put along generating revenue at your current rate and grow 5x in five years, that's great for me as the investor. It's great for you as well. Pay me back. And we're all happy. So I think we'll see a lot more of that coming up. We'll see how it plays out. Who knows how these companies' first runs or their first funds are going to turn out. But I suspect that they're going to find a lot of companies where founders could use the money. If when I was building any hacker, someone came up to me and said, hey, I'll give you a hundred grand for you to support your lifestyle in San Francisco. But if you, you know, if this thing works out and you start generating revenue, you need to pay me back like up to 5x that over the next 10 years, I would say, great. That seems perfect. I like, see, I like those terms. Those terms are cool where you just pay some multiple. Yeah, I and mean, then there's like a cap. Yeah. Peter Lovell's had a pretty cynical take on this. I don't know if you saw that, but he compared these people who are investing in indie hacker businesses to record, like to old record labels. And I was like, I'm sure some of them are like that, but it seems like there's a diversity. Judging by what you said, there's a diversity. But I saw his tweet about that today and I was like, huh, I wonder, you know, I wonder what the capital, I guess, the, you know, the dividend side of things, you know. I don't know if I would view it as old record labels. I mean, I didn't, I didn't see his tweet. But the thing is, when I think about a record label, I think of like, because I think about almost everything as a business nowadays. Like I think of a musician as a business, but like there are a business where they're taking care of the product side of things the music and they're trying to outsource the marketing and the sales and like all the distribution and all the other parts of the business and so of course if you outsource that like you know three or four quarters of your business to a record label they're gonna have like pretty onerous terms for that's you that's right because they're doing a lot of the work right if you were just a solo musician and you didn't figure out how to get your song on the radio then you probably wouldn't make very much money so of course the record label deserves a lot of money but i think for a founder Someone who goes into this thinking, you know, I'm going to wear all these different hats. I'm going to be responsible for the success of my business. The investor isn't doing it for me. They're sort of enabling me. Like, they deserve some sort of reward for that. But they're not, like, literally the person in charge of my distribution model. And so they're not as onerous as record labels, nor should they be. Uh, Okay, real last question. If somebody's listening to this and they're going to go check out the Indie Hackers podcast right after this, as they should, certainly the Peter Levels episode is awesome. Any other episodes that come to mind that they should immediately queue up? I would say you generally can't go wrong by listening to the podcast in reverse order because it's probably, hopefully, gotten better over time. It's hard to pick a favorite. because, <laughs> But I, I do like the episode I recorded with my good friend, Len Tai, who you know as well. Oh, yeah. We've been friends for 13, 14 years. It's the second most popular episode of the Indie Actors Podcast behind Peter Levels' episode, which was out, I think, a year before Len's. And so she might be catching up. But I think her episode is great because she is not someone you would expect to learn how to code. And yes, she learned how to code. She's not someone you would expect to start a business. And she started a super impressive business. She has almost no expenses. She generates a crazy amount of revenue, has a great lifestyle, doesn't work that many hours, just has a great story for how she got there. And I think it's really one of the most inspirational episodes because it kind of shows 
that like, yeah, business is hard. It's a little bit scary, but it's not that hard. And I think a huge component of inspiration is seeing somebody that you can relate to who's not intimidating, doing the thing that you want to do. And I think Len is like a very relatable, great storyteller, just great person to listen to on a podcast. So I recommend her episode. I think it's number 86. Danielle Raskin, too, is a good one. Oh, uh, yeah, Danielle Baskin. She's, she's Danielle awesome. Baskin, she's uh, also one of the top downloaded episodes, and she's just, like, super quirky. She would have been a... Very quirky. Yeah, she started, what, like, 20-something different businesses that she hasn't shut down any of them. She's just running well in parallel. So um, her episode is a really good take on, <laughs> I think, the point that I was making earlier where a business can look like anything, and anything that you're passionate about, totally. as long as you put a revenue model on that, it's a business. Corlin, thanks for coming on. Been a pleasure. Jeff, thanks for having me. If you want to extract value from your data, it can be difficult, especially for non-technical, non-analyst users. As software builders, you have this unique opportunity to unlock the value of your data to users through your product or your service. Jaspersoft offers embeddable reports, dashboards, and data visualizations that developers love. Give your users intuitive access to data in the ideal place for them to take action, within your application. To check out a sample application with embedded analytics, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com jaspersoft. You can find out how easy it is to embed reporting and analytics into your application. Jaspersoft is great for admin dashboards or for helping your customers make data-driven decisions within your product because it's not just your company that wants analytics, it's also your customers. In an upcoming episode of Software Engineering Daily, we will talk to Tibco about visualizing data inside apps based on modern front-end libraries like React, Angular, and Vue.js. In the meantime, check out Jaspersoft for yourself at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jaspersoft. Thanks to Tibco for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Daily.